Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, it's time for a little more true crime, and we travel back 50 years to Montreal and what's considered the biggest art heist in Canadian history. It's called the Skylight Caper, and it took place at the city's Museum of Fine Arts back on September 4th, 1972, when three men entered, of course, through a skylight that was under repair lowering down by rope into the gallery, making off with an estimated $2 million worth of jewelry and paintings, including Rembrandt, and leaving behind many other masterpieces when they tripped an alarm. Who did it? Where are many of those artworks now? It remains a mystery a half century later. Gun violence is now the leading cause of death amongst kids in America. We head to the front lines to speak with a pediatric surgeon in California about how they train, operate, and cope with such devastating injuries in victims so very young. But first, Global Mail Ottawa Bureau Chief Robert Fife joins me to talk about the crisis at the Trudeau Foundation following revelations in his reporting about a hefty donation made to the foundation in 2016 that has alleged links to the Chinese government in Beijing. The CEO and president and the board of directors have all just resigned. What next? Let's start tonight in Ottawa and the continuing fallout from the mass resignation yesterday of the president and CEO and the entire volunteer board of directors at the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation. The nonprofit was set up to honor the memory of the late prime minister in 2002 with the help of a $125 million government endowment set up under former liberal prime minister Jean Chrétien. Uh, the prime minister was asked about this yesterday. Here's what he had to say. It was established uh, to promote uh, knowledge and uh, academic research into the humanities uh, following uh, the death of my father uh, and has had uh, a, an extraordinary impact on uh, academic institutions and on uh, you know, brilliant Canadians. But I am certain that the Trudeau Foundation uh, will be able to continue to ensure uh, that research into the social studies and humanities at the highest levels across Canadian uh, academic institutions uh, continues for many years to come. There is the Prime Minister. Now, there's no doubt the Trudeau Foundation has done good work over the years, but all of this boils down to one donation, a donation that one source told La Presse in Montreal today was a stink bomb for the organization. At least that's what led to this whole resignation that we've seen uh, this week. Uh, what has come under scrutiny was a donation it received in 2016 that has alleged ties to Beijing, to China's government. The foundation said it would return the $140,000 it received. Now, just to be clear, Justin Trudeau has no direct ties to the foundation these days, having stepped back or stepped away back when he was named Liberal Party leader a decade ago. But the donation was seen as a way, at least to the, according to reporting, to curry favor with uh, the party and what they suspected might be the future prime minister of this country. The opposition, uh, Pierre Polyev, the leader, is calling for an investigation. The dictatorship in Beijing gave the Trudeau Foundation $200,000. It's actually, we believe, 140, but there's some, you know, there's some things to clear up here. Um, joining me now with more on this to help do that is Global Mail Ottawa Bureau Chief Robert Fife. Uh, thanks so much for your time. Welcome to the show, Robert. Welcome. Happy to do so, Ben. This is such a remarkable story. The chapters just keep adding on. So, you know, you've done some reporting today as well. Uh, we saw the resignation, essentially, of, of the entire brain trust of the foundation yesterday. And we're finding a bit more out about some of the circumstances around that, including what is now referred to as this stink bomb 
of a donation, as it was referred to. Tell me, take take me back a bit to the donation itself. Who made it, and what were you told about the reasons for it? Okay, back in 2016, we reported uh, the fact that Mr. Trudeau had attended these cash for access fundraisers, and there was one at the home of a uh, of a man named Benson Wong, who is the president of the Chinese. Canadian Business Council of Canada, uh, in which uh, a number of high-rolling Chinese-Canadian businessmen were there, but also a billionaire from China. What a billionaire from China was doing at a liberal fundraiser in a private home um, raised a lot of questions. After we reported that, we then subsequently learned that um, um, about um, um, several months after that, um, that fundraiser, uh, he donated uh, 200. He pledged 200 thousand dollars to the Trudeau Foundation and 750 thousand to the University of Montreal Law School, where purely Trudeau had um, studied and taught, and 50 thousand dollars for a statue of the former prime minister. Um, that became a big stink, and eventually the Liberals uh, brought in rules on these cash for access things. And now, cash, we let's you know we move forward to um, last month in February, where a uh, or sorry, no, late February, where a, a, a national security official uh, told us that in fact. Uh, CSIS had picked up a conversation between uh, one of the uh, donors, uh, Zheng Bin, who is the the billionaire, in which uh, and a a commercial attaché at the uh, Chinese embassy, uh, and the uh, official, the uh, diplomat, told them to uh, contribute a million dollars to the Trudeau Foundation and and the University of Montreal. And the, and the Chinese government would reimburse them. So this was, uh, at the time in 2016, was a uh, classic Chinese influence operation directed at, uh, at the prime minister. Uh, as a result of that story, it caused uh, enormous controversy inside the organization. They then began to look into uh, how this came about. And uh, there we now, um, we're reporting tonight that the uh, Trudeau Foundation is planning an outside review of this uh, Beijing Link donation right. after concerns are raised internally about possible wrongdoing. And what happened here is that after we reported about the, the CSIS uh, uh, conversation that they picked up, uh, they, they um, the senior staff and uh, newer board members who joined after 2016 discovered that the donor record was Millennium Golden Eagle International. It's a Chinese state-affiliated company run by Mr. Zhang. They also learned that the associated tax receipts may not be accurate. Um, One of the sources said that, uh, familiar with the matter, said that the China China Cultural Industry Association, which is a state-backed group in Beijing that is really part of the China soft power, uh, mm-hmm. initiative uh, contacted the Trudeau Foundation at the outset to dictate what name and address should be put on the tax receipt for the gift. Uh, officials with the association asked the Trudeau uh, Foundation to refrain from using the names of Mr. Zhang and the fellow billionaire now Jing Zing. Mm-hmm. Those are the men who the foundation publicly identified as the donors. Instead, the, the officials asked that the foundation attribute the donation to this to Millennium Golden Eagle International Canadian subsidiary, which, uh, by the way, 
and they asked that the tax receipt be linked to an address in Hong Kong rather than the company's address, which, by the way, is in Dorval. It's a mansion with a pool and a basket court in, in the Montreal suburb of Dorval. And, right. um, and so when the copy of the, of, the, of the receipt for the first installment of 70000 we've, we've obtained, uh, we, we've seen the receipt. It confirms that the name and address of the receipt does not bear any names of Mr. Zhang or this Mr. No. It names Millennium Golden Eagle International as a donor list and address in Hong Kong. That same trove of documents which we obtained also shows that the Chinese Cultural Group later asked that the tax receipt be reissued to its address in Beijing and not the wow. address in Hong Kong. So all this was, was – was, uh, the big problem is they were trying to return the money, right? They wanted to give this donation back and then all of a sudden realized they didn't know who – they, they couldn't figure out who to give it to because of well, this paper they, trail they, you're talking about. Yeah, they tr- Well, they, that is true. They, they did try a number of times to have Canada Post deliver uh, the $140,000 back uh, to the, to um, this um, – to the residents in Dorval, but nobody was there. But subsequently to that, it gets really complicated. But it's I know really it is. I mean, it is really interesting. So, okay. So then uh, we've seen a document which was first obtained by the press that says one of the foundation members who had been a director at the time, but now uh, a foundation member, and the foundation members are the people who appoint the board and the auditor and that sort of stuff, later phoned a senior staff member of the foundation to say, the real donor was not the individuals named publicly on or on the tax receipt issued by the foundation in 2016 and 2017. This, this member uh, urged the staff member uh, to hand deliver a $140,000 check to the real donor as the way to protect the foundation and turn the page. Uh, this was a, and, and this document was something that was sent to the board on March 29th. And wow. uh, it's, un- okay. it's unclear who this member was because the staff member who uh, refused to do so, saying it would not only be unethical, but illegal, uh, because this is a third party, which the foundation has no relationship with. Um, so all of these things percolated together, um, and uh, it led to a very contentious um, board meeting on March 31st, in which uh, the board agreed to to call to to have an independent uh, audit of the of the donation, so that uh, lawyers and accountants could look at uh, every email, uh, everybody who was an interview, everybody who may have been associated with this now stinky donation, which is really looks like dirty money, um, and uh, they passed that, but. But then um, it, it now, but then after that happened, um, Ted uh, Johnson, who is the who used to work for Mr. Trudeau Sr. Um, and is the chair of the board, agreed that there should be an independent uh, review. It didn't say that the, the letter, I, the email that I saw from him, although it didn't say there should be an audit, but people say there will be an audit involved with this. But um, a lot of people felt that it it, it, um, yeah, that it I mean, wasn't it, going to get to the bottom of the issue, and so a lot of people resigned. So what right, we so, have so, here, it, 
we now have, I'll, I'll, I'll take a quick break here, Robert. Sorry about that. We'll just, yeah. well, I mean, we'll tie all this together because this is, I mean, what we're talking about here is a, is a fairly substantial sum of money. Um, what happened? I mean, you've done a lot of these stories, Bob. What happens now? Do you, I mean, this feels, this one feels like it has legs. Oh, this has legs uh, for sure. I mean, uh, some people I've spoke to on the board feel that the auditor general should be called in. And why the Auditor General? Well, let's remember that the Trudeau Foundation is not a foundation for the family, even though they seem to try to run it like that. Uh, it's a found, They didn't put any money into this. You and I did. $125 million of our money went into that. And they feel that uh, the Auditor General needs to be called in to uh, properly do uh, an audit and, uh, and tell Canadians what actually happened with this money. It's very possible. Um, I wouldn't rule this out. It's also possible that uh, at some point the RCMP may be called in. I just, I mean, it's early days to, to say that, but the fact that some of these people feel that the Auditor General should be called in just shows you how serious it is. I think there's a lot of concern right now from the, so many of the people who uh, resigned on mass is that uh, the people who were staying on, uh, Ted Johnson and uh, uh, Bruce McNevin and Paul Shell, who are uh, Trudeau family friends, that they aren't going to do a proper job in getting to the bottom of this. Uh, that's their fear and concern. Um, but whatever the case is, um, they're going to have, you know, we may act, this foundation, which is publicly funded, uh, may need to have somebody uh, look into it who is not uh, close to the Trudeau family, is not tainted by being uh, so close to the Trudeau family. Right. And, and of course, we, we're about to have, I mean, a special rapporteur has been named to look into Chinese influence, David Johnston, who happens to have been a board member of the Trudeau Foundation. And that creates a whole other, uh, well, cer- whole other set of that, circumstances. Uh, the guy who was asked to look into the, uh, for, to the government to uh, look into Chinese influence in the 2021 election campaign, Morris Rosenberg, was the guy who was running the Trudeau Foundation when this stinky money came in. Uh, he was right. the one who... Uh, signed a tax receipt that sent the sent it to uh, to Hong Kong and presumably later to Beijing. So the whole thing has got a real s- a smell to it. Yeah. Uh, I, and, and from now, I mean, just to, to wrap it all up, for the time being, we're, at, we're basically at a situation where the money has not been returned, as the foundation said it was going to attempt to do. Not only has it not been returned, but apparently there is a real donor out there who nobody knows except uh, uh, at least some members of the Trudeau Foundation who know the real uh, person, and they wanted to give them uh, the tax receipt to him, uh, or sorry, return the money to whoever this person is, so that they can say, oh, we return the money, forget about it, it's all over with. Um, so there's a, clearly there's more to this story than meets the eye. If there's somebody out there who is the real person who contributed the money, and it wasn't these two chi- uh, two billionaires. Uh, who else? Yeah. Who, who was it in China that gave the money? Well, I, I imagine we're going to keep reading reading your work to find out. Uh, Bob, as always, thank you so much for your time tonight. You're more than welcome. Bye. You know, there's a few things that you can guarantee in life, and one of them is that there's rarely a dull moment in Alberta politics these days. So. As Albertans get set to go to the polls at the end of next month, I guess May 29th is scheduled to be the day, it already feels like the province has been in campaign mode for a bit now. And the premier entered this month, and it continues, plagued by a scandal she just cannot seem 
to shake. We found out earlier this week that Alberta's ethics commissioner is launching an investigation into whether Danielle Smith interfered with the administration of justice tied to COVID-19 prosecutions. This is all based mostly on her own words um, and her own denials, but her own words as well. Uh, Her office says that the premier is fully cooperating with the commissioner and is confident this examination will confirm there has been no such interference. The opposition NDP, I said it's campaign time, right? Opposition NDP has been calling for an independent investigation since a video was released of a phone call between Smith and Calgary pastor Artur Pawlowski. Uh, During the call, they discussed his criminal case that was just weeks before his trial in Lethbridge on February 2nd on pandemic-related charges was set to begin. Uh, Here is a little bit of that now infamous phone call. Once the process is underway, I can ask our prosecutors, is there a reasonable likelihood of conviction? And is it in the public interest? And I assure you, I have asked them that almost weekly ever since I got started here. It's unfortunate that I uh, I didn't understand the limitations. I thought we probably had the same power of clemency that they did in the U.S. Yeah, uh, almost weekly is one of the one of the one of the words in there, or at least one of the terms in that conversation you should probably pay attention to. Also, why did the phone call happen in the first place? There have been different different explanations from the Premier herself about what exactly she was doing on that call. Dave Breckenridge is the editor of the Edmonton Journal and Edmonton Sun, host of the 10-3 podcast, a regular on our show as well. Uh, thanks so much for your time, Dave. Welcome back. Happy to be back, Ben. So this one, I mean, I follow, I'm in, you know, I'm in BC, so we, do, we don't follow it every single day. But wow, this is like watching a tennis match, this one. It's back and forth and back and forth. It just won't go away, though. So, but her story seems to keep shifting a little bit. What's going on? Well, I mean, if this, if this were a tennis match, essentially the premier is faulting at every serve or is hitting the net or tripping over the net tripping over her shoelaces. This is one of those instances where the more Danielle Smith talks about it, the worse it seems to get for her. And we've, we've gotten past even the question of, you know, was she implying that she was actually talking to prosecutors? She said that she was talking, she meant to say she was talking to justice officials. It's gotten past that whole debate. And it's, it's just gone into this weird place of why was she talking to Arthur Pulaski to begin with. And why does she keep changing her story on this? It just seems to make it it worse and worse. And we're at the point now, originally it was because she was talking to uh, a constituent about charges. You know, there's, it was an issue that she campaigned on in the leadership race. And then up, up until I think over Easter weekend on, on her, her program on chorus stations in, in Calgary and Edmonton, which she has an hour long, there's a show started by her predecessor, Jason Kenney, your province, your premier. She said that this is now, uh, it was a case of two party leaders talking with one another as, as at the time he's no, he no longer is, but at the time Pawlowski was the Pawlowski. I can't remember if I'm pronouncing it correctly. I apologize. Was the leader of the Alberta independence party. And she claims that this was somehow a legitimate conversation between two party leaders. <laughs> and I don't know how it's expected that people are to believe that a based on the recording that we've all heard, there's no real mention of party politics at all. It's all about the charges that are against him and B the Alberta independence party is a nothing party. The premier and the leader of the Alberta UCP has better things to do with her time. I would think than talking with the leader of a fringe party about the charges that he's facing in coots. And these aren't like 
mask tickets or violating social distancing. He was charged, I believe, with like incitement, if I'm not mistaken. He was charged under the Alberta Critical Infrastructure Defense Act. Um, and oh, where is it now? Uh, I'm charged with two criminal offenses, including mischief, as well as interrupting the operation of essential infrastructure in a manner that renders it inoperative. These are not your your garden variety uh, COVID charges. These are these are charges under an act that was brought in under Jason Kenney to deal with people who are blockading public infrastructure in relation yeah. to people blocking hospitals, but also protesting rail lines and pipelines and all that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I get. I obviously followed her campaign to become leader, and she was very outspoken about her thoughts, at least on COVID nineteen prosecutions, and thought they were a waste of time. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, um, but the idea that she'd pick up the phone—I mean, I know it was—but the idea she'd pick up the phone and call someone who was about to face charges on anything, regardless of what what it was or how political it was, on anything—and he doesn't exactly have a great reputation either. So it just, it seems, you're right. It's just like the, hearing it, you're thinking, what? what? How many people facing trial or facing a court date does the premier pick up the phone and call? And that to me seems to be the real question here. Like, why would you do that? What are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, it all sounds like it, it stemmed from the conversation was facilitated by another political doctor, I believe, Dr. Dennis Modry in Alberta. He is also known uh, opponent of COVID restrictions, very uh, politically active in conservative circles. And it sounds like he facilitated this call between the premier and and Mr. Pawlowski. Um, but yeah, like at the end of the day, it's one of those things where it's it's kind of baffling. It, like, I think the, the premier wants to everyone to move on from whether she talked to prosecutors, whether she said she did, she insists that she meant uh, the deputy minister and the minister and those kind of conversations. Sure. You, you know, premiers or ministers of justice would have conversations with their deputies about, you know, whether this policy on these prosecutions, whether it's in the public interest, I know that like that happens around drug prosecutions in, in, in places in Canada as well. Like I know in BC, there's been talk for years as to whether, you know, they should decriminalize drug possession and that that's, they've got sure. federal exemption to do that. Like those are the kind of things. So Sure have those conversations with your, your deputy. So we've moved past that. And now it's just the kind of thing where she's given so many excuses on it and it still hasn't explained away the fact that she's talking to someone who you're right. He doesn't have the best reputation. And he, he even essentially accused the premier then wild Rose leader way back in, in her previous political life of idolatrous behavior because she was at, I believe, a Sikh temple, and she, you know, she, you, politicians right. go to these cultural events, and and they will occasionally put on garb like scarves and whatnot. And she had some of this garb on her, and and the pastor who was a general malcontent in Calgary political circles at the time essentially said like. <laughs> That's idolatrous behavior. I wouldn't be giving that guy the time of day. He also blamed the 2013 floods in Calgary on the sin of homosexuality. This is not a guy who can who is like a serious political operative in Alberta. Yeah. I, I, on the political side of things, though, how much traction is it getting? Because scandals are scandals, right? But how much traction is it getting uh, as we head into an election? I mean, these are the things that are, I mean, how much, I mean, how much damage do you think it might it might do? And what will come of this ethics commissioner thing? 
Well, I mean, ethics commissioner investigations take time. It's not like I, I can't imagine we're going to have a report on this whole matter uh, by the time people vote uh, in late May. This is the kind of thing that could I, I could be wrong. They could it could be done quickly. But I know based on past investigations by Alberta's ethics commissioner, they've you know, several months we were talking about. So this isn't the kind of thing that voters are going to get a report on likely before the election. Um I stand to be corrected on that uh, by the actions of Margaret uh, Tressler. But I think by the time we hit the the writ period, people will have moved on just because of the nature of of cyclical daily news relating to an election. There's already been three or four news stories that have come out in the last couple of days that, you know, could take change the channel, I guess, take attention away from from this uh, scandal. So it, it, the only the only way it stays a scandal is if the premier keeps talking about it or offering new excuses for it. And I, maybe she's said her last word on it. I don't know. Let me be very clear. Uh, the minister of justice uh, said no such thing. If you actually look at his remarks, um, it is very clear that we're talking about the importance of the federal government living up to our responsibilities under UNDRIP, something that unfortunately the Prairie Premiers have not taken seriously, and they are instead trying to um, elevate fears that have absolutely no grounding in truth. You always have to be a little suspicious when a uh, politician uses the word very clear more than once, <laughs> even once. Dave Breckenridge, editor of the Edmonton Senate, Edmonton Journal, host of the 10-3 podcast, is with us this half hour. So this, is, this one feels like uh, this has a long history, right, clearly. Uh, but what he's talking about is David Lametti was, was uh, quoted in an article that was a bit hard to make sense of last week about how maybe, just maybe, they would review some of those federal agreements going back to 1930, the Natural Resources Transfer Agreements, and those uh, give the four western provinces, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and B.C., control over the natural resources. So obviously, any any notion that they're being toyed with is going to land like a lead balloon uh, on the prairies. Uh, how much traction is this one getting, Dave? Oh, I, I know we got a lot of traction with Alberta's Premier uh, Daniel Smith and Saskatchewan's Premier Scott Moe, and, and they, they try to make a lot of hay of it. I mean, look, it, if you look at these the quotes from the federal justice minister, I don't think he spoke as strongly as the initial article uh, that was online um, made it out to be. He didn't necessarily say the province would look at rescinding the act, I mean, if you look at the quote, the question or the statement from Chief Donald Miracla of uh, the Mohawks of the Bay of Quint. Uh, yeah. Quinty, yeah, 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 dear Kingston, yes. Yes, my, I'm definitely a, an Anglo from Alberta. He called on the federal <laughs> government to rescind the act, and, and, and he said that Canada exports natural resources to other countries. They earn trillions of dollars in revenues. Those resources were given to the provinces without ever asking one Indian if it was okay to do that or what benefits the First Nations would expect to receive by Canada consenting to that arrangement. And then Lametti, I mean... I think he tried to be as careful as he could, but I don't know if he was careful enough. He, he, he said, I obviously can't pronounce on that right now, but I do commit to looking at that. And yeah. it will be uncontroversial. Like for a federal cabinet minister, the justice minister to say that he commits to looking at that arrangement, the arrangement that sees these provinces have control over the resources, it's going to raise some red flags. Just as we talked in the previous segment about Daniel Smith needing to potentially be a little more careful with her words, in, in how she 
is explaining her her interactions with Artur Pavlovsky. This David Lametti, I feel like he tried to couch his words in a way that wouldn't be controversial, but you know, politicians are going to going to politic. And and Scott Moe and Daniel Smith sure found a way to make it make hay out of it. And I think it caught a lot of people who don't like the Trudeau government um, in a position where they could turn around and say, "See, look, this is these are the these are the reasons that there is a Saskatchewan First Act, and this is the reason there is an Alberta sovereignty with the, in a United Canada Act. We need to watch out for our areas of jurisdiction because the federal government is keen to take them away. It plays into these." Lametti's statement, even as tame as the, the actual quote is, plays into the narrative that the feds are out to get the Western provinces. Yeah, or that, or that they just don't care about it, right? That, they, that they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll say stuff like this because it plays well and, and not, not respect the fact that it's going to, again, going to cause a firestorm in certain places with people who look very suspiciously towards, suspiciously towards Ottawa and their managing of the resource file, period. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, on the on the flip side, you know, David Lametti's follow up statement is, is speaking the truth. To be clear, at no point did I commit our government to reviewing areas of provincial jurisdiction that, you know, right. these are he was yeah, able to walk it back in a way. And, and it and it seems like especially if you look at everything going on in Alberta right now, Daniel Smith could probably use the channel changed on on some of the other issues. So. It it did play into her favor as it allowed people to even even if opponents came out and said, oh, come on, David Lametti never said that you're just playing it up. It gets people focused on something else. Yes, absolutely. Speaking of never a dull moment in Alberta, this story caught my eye, of course. I was climbing the top of the balls and then I slipped through a hole that was big enough for me to fit through. So then I ended up getting stuck and I couldn't get out. It was tough. You know, I was trying to stay calm at the beginning and, you know, my, I had someone with me who helped keep me calm. But then after a while, you know, I started panicking and it was pretty, pretty sketchy. Yeah, that, that's a 26-year-old man who fell into an art installation and got trapped in Edmonton uh, over the weekend. Uh, tell me about this because I didn't know much about the t- – I'd seen it. I'd seen pictures of it. I didn't realize it cost half a million dollars and was relatively controversial. But how do you fall into it, this Talus Dome? <laughs> well, so the Talus Dome or the Talus Balls, as it's colloquially called here, is, as you mentioned, it's a, it's a shiny pile of silver balls, obviously hollow on the inside, that – sits just off a fairly busy freeway, but in the River Valley area of of Southwest Edmonton. Um, It was controversial at the time, in part because of the cost. It was part of this whole, you build a big infrastructure project and a percentage of that has to go to, like a very small percentage, maybe 1% or half a percent, has to go to public art. And so this sculpture was built, and so the cost was a big deal, and also the fact that it was placed right next to this freeway and not where people would be likely to walk up to it. And it's there. Edmontonians have kind of gotten used to it. And so I, you know, I knew it was hollow inside, but I didn't know a, that you, there was a hole big enough to fall into. And so in what a witness called as like, this is so Edmonton. And it pains me to say that it's so Edmonton. The fact that someone, someone out with, I, I heard on, on another radio station that he was on a date. So someone who's on a date and somehow climbs, decides, Hey, I'm going to make this, other person laugh and climb up this thing and and see what's inside and then fall in and get stuck and then the fire department has to come and cut off one of the larger balls so there's a big enough hole to get them out and it becomes a whole thing and of course 
it's one of the more controversial pieces of public art that that this happened to. It's just, it's all silly. And it's, <laughs> I mean, it gives more notoriety than this sculpt to the sculpture than I think the city ever intended when they put it in here. And we all had a good laugh about it. It's very Edmonton. Um, <laughs> it was, it was I, I guess disturbing. that's all there is to say about that. It's just, it's, it's a head scratcher for sure. It is. Uh, uh, before we go, we've got a minute left. Best heist movie. That's our question for the night. All right. It's going to be the obvious choice, but it's obvious because it does everything that a heist movie should do so well. It gives yeah. you a, like a big score. It gives you a reason for the heist and it walks you through all the steps and puts all the pieces together so expertly. It'd be Ocean's Eleven directed by the great Steven Soderbergh starring George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Julia Roberts. It is eminently entertaining and rewatchable. And that's why it's the best. I couldn't, you know, I've always really loved that movie. That's a great one. Dave Breckenridge, as always, thanks for your time. No problem. Hey, Bobby. I've been evicted. What do you mean? The Impressionist Gallery. Closed for cleaning. Cleaning? Yeah. Doing it right now. Hey, Deb. Lend me a hand here for a minute. Currently. Yeah, the Thomas Crown Affair. Of course, the remake. I always like the Steve McQueen one, but the Pierce Brosnan one has a great art theft in it. Therefore, that's the one we chose tonight. We're talking art heists this evening. They've long been long been the stuff of the big screen, of course, right? Dashing thieves, getting away with priceless masterpieces. It's always very suave. It's not like a gangster movie, right? It's always much more elegant than all that. Uh, but real art thefts tend to be a little less stylized, no less dramatic, mind you. Take what is considered to be the biggest art heist in Canadian history. Now, it took place more than 50 years ago in September of 1972 at Montreal's Museum of Fine Arts. If you've been to Montreal, that's right in the city city center, more or less, on Sherbrooke, corner of Crescent. You can't miss the place. Um, but you may never have heard of what happened on the night of the 4th of September of that year. I certainly hadn't. I grew up there. I hate to confess such ignorance, but I grew up in the city. I reported in the city for quite a while. Never did we do an anniversary of it. Never did we talk about it in a different context. The so-called skylight caper was never talked about. In many ways, for such a big heist, it occupies a pretty small place in our national memory, even in the civic memory of Montreal. Perhaps it was down to timing. That night, if you're thinking September 1972, what was going on back then that could have distracted so many people all at once? It happened to be game two of the now infamous summit series between Canada and the USSR at Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. All eyes were on that game after a shock 7-4 loss for the home side at the Montreal Forum. Not too far from that museum, actually, just two nights earlier. Here's what it sounded like in Toronto on that night. And while the Cold War on ice was playing out in Toronto, the next day, the world's eyes would turn to Munich, where the 1972 Olympics were taking place when a terrorist attack killed 11 members of the Israeli Olympic team in what is known as the Munich Massacre. Good afternoon. I'm Jim McKay speaking to you live at this moment from ABC headquarters just outside the Olympic Village in Munich, West Germany. The peace of what is what have been called the Serene Olympics was shattered just before dawn this morning, about five o'clock. 
So it's perhaps understandable why the so-called Skylight Caper in Montreal, named for how the three thieves gained entry to the museum, didn't get much attention at the time and even less in the subsequent years. Still, the hall was a major one. Thieves spent 30 minutes inside gathering paintings and artifacts after subduing security guards. They selected a few dozen canvases off the walls, but when an alarm on a side entrance was tripped, they fled out the door with what they could carry. 39 pieces of jewelry and 18 paintings, including works by Corot, Courbet, Delacroix, Bruegel the Elder, Rubens, and a Rembrandt, valued at the time at a million dollars. The museum estimated the total uh, haul was $2 million in stolen property. And to this day, only a few of the items were ever recovered as part of an ongoing ransom negotiation very early on, and no suspects have ever been named. The rest of the art who knows? It has been the subject of some reporting over the years, just a bit, including by my next guest, arts journalist Chris Hampton, uh, who wrote a piece called The Skylight Caper for Canada Art Magazine. And he joins me now from Hamilton. Chris, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Ben. This is one of those remarkable stories, because if you ask someone, what do you think the biggest art heist in Canadian history was? I think we would struggle to figure it out. And yet here it is. 50 years ago now, 51 years ago almost. Uh, what got you interested in it? So I'd never heard of it. My editor at Canadian Art, Brian McLaughlin, he came to me one day. I'd been doing some quasi-investigative reporting missions for, for that magazine. And he came to me with this pile of papers that he'd collected on his desk for like a decade. Wow. About the, yeah, about the biggest art heist in Canada that nobody seemed to know about. And that was just like a tantalizing detail for me. Like, reading kind of the details of what happened in this thing it sounds like a total hollywood caper and nobody knew this story so i was like i want to i want to get inside of it i want to learn about it i grew up in montreal and had never heard of it really i mean i, I you know tangentially a few but never anything uh, to the point like it's not not like the thomas crown affair happened in your backyard we just didn't know about it i used to go to that museum all the time as most kids do when school trips and so on so you went back to take a look at it and the context of when it happened is kind of important because there was a lot going on in that September of 1972 in this country. Right. So it happened on Monday, September 4th, 1972, which was the Labor Day Monday. And that's the same day as Game 2 in the Canada-USSR uh, Summit Series. Well, wow. uh, That would, would have been that evening. So that would have taken like newspaper precedence that weekend. There was a massive fatal fire in Montreal that happened on the, I believe, Friday evening, which would have been competing for newspaper space. It was really competing for space at the time that it happened. Right, because the Munich, it was Munich Olympics, right, at the same time, you said? That, that's exactly right, yes. So what exactly happened? Because it's called the Skylight Caper for a reason. So here you have the, the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts. It has a pretty extensive and well-known collection. There's some renovations going on. And on the night of September the 4th, people break in. How does it, how does it unfold? Yeah, okay, so it's, it's like just after midnight, if I'm setting the scene, it's like 12.30. And apparently there are some trees in an alleyway beside the museum. And it appears that one of the trees gets scaled. And there's a ladder that's waiting on the rooftop. And the intruder lowers the ladder to two guys that are waiting below. And so these three fellas, they knew that there was a skylight that was being repaired. And so the alarm was disabled and they drop a uh, rope through the skylight and rappel down into the museum below. And then they find the other two guards who are on duty that night and they gag and tie them as well. And they 
go around collect jewelry and art and collecting a stash that they're um, going to try and get away with. They end up getting together 39 pieces of jewelry and 18 paintings, uh, as well as a stack of, of about a dozen more paintings that they'd propose to steal before they trip an alarm on a side entrance. And they take off running down Sherbrooke with the 18 paintings underarm. So they knew of this flaw in the security system, though, because how, how, I mean, it's hard to tell, this is 50 years ago, but how tight was security at the museum at the time? I know that we weren't as, as conscious of, of security as we are today, but it would have been, presumably would have been relatively secure at the time. Oh, yeah. Like, well, they already had well-developed electronic security systems at that point in time. So this was somebody who knew that there was a defect in the armor at that moment, that, that there was a reason why the uh, security was slightly disabled. So somebody had that information. And they lower themselves down. They, they use, I, I gather, because it comes up in your piece, they use a, like a 15-meter a nylon rope. It was quite the drop. Oh, yeah. These were, um, it's a really grand room that they were rappelling down into. And uh, so, yeah, it would have been at least 10 meters. And yes, they had like a 15, I've also read 30 meter length of rope that they rappelled down into. So this, yeah, is truly like Hollywood caper kind of stuff. Unbelievable. And then and then there are, there is security in the building at the time, right? But But they managed to surprise them. They surprised them. Like I said, they encountered one, they gag and tie him up and they end up finding the other two in the first floor and they gag and tie them up too. Uh, the intruders, I, I believe at least two of them have weapons. They have guns. Yeah, they tie them up in a lecture hall on the first floor and they doing their, their burgling, cracking open these like many hundred year old frames and taking out the canvases and, and stashing and stacking what they, what they want to steal. Yeah, I, I'm one of the um, pieces that you went back and found. I gather was with someone who worked at the museum when it, uh, way back. Um, they they were pretty efficient in terms of what they were looking for and what they were trying to get away of. I saw it once described as essentially they ran. They, there was a clear out. They were working to clear the place out. Yeah, so that was the curator of decorative arts. Her name was Ruth Jackson, and the 18 paintings that they did get away with. In, include some like big masters like Corot, Rubens, Corbet, Delacroix. There's a, a landscape by Rembrandt. Mm -hmm. But then the things that they didn't get away with also include kind of masters of equal footing, maybe some um, some more contemporary pieces. Like there was a Picasso in there. There's a, a Bruegel the Elder. I believe there was oh another uh, Peter Paul Rubens. They really knew how they could quickly get at them. So there was a lot of information that went into this robbery. We've gotten to the point where the thieves have taken advantage of, of repairs being done to a skylight at the museum, so the alarms were off. Um, they rappelled down or scaled down a 15, 30-meter rope to get into the museum, subdued the, the security guards, tied them up, went about essentially uh, clearing out the museum of many of their greatest works. Then, Chris, you mentioned they trip an alarm. They don't get away with all that they've come to get. But did they really run up Sherbrooke Street? I mean, that's like running down Young Street in Toronto, or it's sort of the busiest streets in the city. They were running down the street at night with all this stuff. So this is what's outlandish about this. It's one thirty, one o'clock in the in at night, uh, Sherbrooke. Yeah, the biggest street in Montreal, one of the biggest streets in Montreal, and they have eighteen paintings between the three of them, and one of them is quite large. It's almost like kind of like a, a two by three foot panel. So you can imagine how you'd have to tuck these under your arms and, and run it's for your life. While running, you have for the, these. running for the bus or something. It's well, incredible. You $2 million worth of, of art uh, under your arms. Yeah. Yeah. It seems unbelievable, but that's the, that's the best theory. Right. Cause you've seen the police file, which is, I gather quite, quite scant. 
I saw a highly redacted version of the police file. I also spoke with the only detective who's worked on uh, this case, who's seen the file unredacted, who's willing to talk about it. Right. And so that, that that's was the best. Theory. That's what that was his account. That's what happened. And and they got away with a fair amount of, of pretty valuable stuff here. Yeah. So, uh, th- I mean, there was a bunch of masterworks in what they stole, a Corot, Corbet, mm-hmm. a Eugene Delacroix, uh, two works by Bruegel the Elder and a landscape by Rembrandt. Everything was valued at that point in time at about two million dollars. Um, you can imagine mm-hmm. today. Today, this is tens of millions of dollars. Yeah. What do I mean in terms of. They left a lot behind, too, right? As, as you mentioned, when when Ruth Jackson, the curator of decorative arts at the time, came in, she essentially said they were clearing the place out. I'm wondering how they would have gotten out of there if if they had even more stuff. That's a great question. And I guess apparently there was a car near the side entrance where they tripped this alarm. They might have been trying to get in the car, possible, right? Uh, because they did have another, I believe, dozen panels canvases that they that they wanted to take that were stacked up and left behind and like i said this included a picasso uh there was an el greco there's two goyas a renoir and another rembrandt so these are masterpieces you know might even double the value of uh of what they'd stolen and then uh lo and behold they seem to just vanish right i mean no one by the time they figured out this has happened they're long gone it seems at least from from your reporting Totally gone. There's no witnesses who can give anything other than they were wearing the the security guards say they were wearing ski masks. Two of them had long hair. Uh, two spoke French. One spoke English. Uh, nobody else has seen them. And it's a, it's a few days later that the museum starts getting uh, ransom calls about right. about everything. So that that's the next. Then then all of a sudden we we get an idea perhaps what the motive was here, or we think maybe that there were ransom demands. What did those look like? So of a few days later, the museum director gets a call described as having a nasally European voice uh, that says to go check a phone booth that's just down the street on McGill campus on right. Sherbrooke. And when museum staff goes and checks it out, they find one of the stolen pieces of jewelry, a pendant. I could have this wrong. I believe it was hidden inside an empty cigarette case, an that's empty right. pack of cigarettes. And then uh, the director says, I want, I want a painting, though. I want you to, be, to prove that you're good on your word, that you want to make a deal here. I want one of the paintings back. And they get directed to Muge- Muge- um, Montreal's Gar Central, the central station. Yeah, the, the train um, station. Yeah, Train station, exactly, into a locker. And right. in the locker, they find one, one painting by Bruegel the Elder. Wow. Yeah. So they I, recover you, one of the paintings. You went back to find those lockers, right? I wanted just some evidence that these important landmarks in this story still existed. Still existed. And, and they didn't. Of course, there's no, no you know, I this think happened they t- like 50 I, years ago. I think there was um, there was a sort of a little makeshift bomb put in one of those lockers at some point back in the early 80s, and they took them all out. If memory serves me correctly, I'd have to go back and look. But that's probably why the lockers are gone. But they find like Oh, a- my. That's an incredible detail. Let me jump in very quickly because I, I didn't include this in the story, but I did ask somebody at one of the information desks, are yeah. there lockers anywhere here? And she told me, oh, those are long gone. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was there was some and this wasn't I mean, it was I'd have to look back at the details, but it was something that happened in the early 80s and they took all the lockers out. But right. in, the, in one of those lockers in 1972, in the fall of 1972, they find a masterpiece. They find a, a, a work by Flemish painter Jan Bruegel the Elder. That's probably from, I believe, the 1500s. Yes. Wow. So at this point in time, there's been ransom demands. There's two pieces of, of, of art have been, two pieces stolen have been recovered. 
And then all of a sudden, that's that, right? I mean, it, it, it the the ransom calls. There's a few more, but they lead nowhere. Is that is that sort of how it begins to unfold? At, at some point, the museum and uh, the people that they're negotiating with they they settle on a price, and it's going to be a setup by the Montreal police, and they have a meeting point that's all established and. At the point that that this is supposed this rendezvous is supposed to happen, a police cruiser that's from a, a, a different suburb that had no idea that this was happening happens to pass by in the distance, and it's it spooks it spooks the thieves, and they take off, and so they call the museum the next day that they're angry about the trap, and then they, no, nobody hears about it again for at least a year. Wow! So at this point, most of what they've taken is still missing. Right. Most of what they've taken is still is still out there and they don't know who. The, I mean, there's never been I gather. I mean, you didn't see the whole police file. Part of it was redacted, but there didn't seem to be a whole lot of publicity about who they were looking for, about descriptions, about, you know, th- th- this story kind of vanished from the papers. It w- It's it's very odd looking back at it 50 years later. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was a lot of theories that it was students from like- the University of Quebec in Montreal. Uh, they tailed them. Uh, it was totally fruitless. Nothing came of it. Uh, there's been lots of theories about organized crime, but there has never been a real suspect. Wow. And more than, and, and now even today, I mean, all those items, other than those two that were that were traded for early on, nothing has been recovered. Nothing has, has come up in any sort of raid. Nothing has turned up at auction. The 17 paintings, the 38 missing pieces of jewelry are all still gone. Wow. What are the theories about, about, I mean, we could talk about what the museum did because they were insured for all of this, right? So for them, they, they, I mean, a lot of this stuff was irreplaceable, but they went out and bought other things. Oh, yeah. I mean, museums are insured for their holdings. Uh, they got, after a, a few years of kind of chasing these around, 1975, I believe it was, they got an insurance settlement for just under $2 million. At that point, they sort of stopped looking for it. It's the insurance companies who, if they if they want to make good on uh, this asset that they now hold, they're the only people that are looking for it. Were there any theories as to what could have happened to the missing jewelry and the missing works of art? So one of the rendezvous messages, it was actually a snapshot of the the 18 stolen paintings altogether. Yeah. It was like a Polaroid. Uh, it came in an envelope that was marked Port of Montreal. And there is a theory out there that that was either an indication or a bluff because the port of Montreal was associated with the West End gang, which is kind of an Irish crime organization in Montreal. And so whether that was a juke, a deke by somebody, or that was a a genuine message, that's that's undetermined. There's a lot of discussions about other organized crime groups maybe orchestrating this, but there's truly no evidence that points to that. it, It strikes me as there are so few mysteries in the world today. It strikes me as incredible that this one remains such a mystery. You you spoke again. You mentioned it earlier with Ale Le Corsier, who is a detective, right? And he continued on in that art world and then looked into it again in the '90s. What were some of his? What did he have to say about it? Uh, He was looking at this case in the '90s, so it's uh, 20 years after it's happened. He's a detective at that point in time, and his supervisor tells him, "Don't worry about that case." Don't waste resources on it. We're never going to find anything. And he's just kind of working on it off the side of his desk. Like it's total passion project for him. And the best he could always come up with was it was an organized crime gang. He thought only because he had reason to believe that 
you could t- you could steal a painting and sell it for a, f- a fraction of the cost in drugs. Right. And so a, a, a $10 million painting might be worth a million dollar, dollars in drugs. Um, whether there's any truth to that or not, this is what he contended. And so he wondered if somebody stole off stole, or uh, ordered up this, this theft, and then the paintings were ferried away to places where they wouldn't be found. And he, and he suggested maybe they're in Costa Rica, maybe they're somewhere in South America, where a lot of these organized crime members had summer homes, other properties, things like that. This, this was his idea. So his his theory is that these works of art were not because I've said so you you mentioned other theories that they had been destroyed right that the thieves themselves after the ransom didn't work out simply got rid of the evidence and disappeared into the night so to speak. It was a question that the director of the Museum of Montreal had at the time that I was reporting it like hopefully they weren't destroyed because sometimes thieves don't know what to do with the paintings once they have them. Robert Whitman, who's this retired FBI agent, who's kind of like a hall of famer in art recovery. He told me, he gave me this great quote. And it's like, the real art in an art heist isn't the heist. It's the sale. It's not getting these. It's not stealing these things. It's finding a way to to sell them. Yeah, you can't put them on eBay, eBay, right? So, If you think a painting by Rembrandt is worth a million dollars, the only way you're going to get that million dollars is if you go to an auction house. And all of the auction houses are committed legally to the restitution of stolen art. So they have to report it. So there's there's no way for you to monetize these things outside the black market. They're worth nothing. And and presumably that one of two things happened in this case, either the thieves knew enough to get in but didn't know enough about how to get how to get rid of them afterwards or this was all the plan to begin with, but that wouldn't explain the whole ransom idea, which seems like if it was a red herring, it was quite the red herring. Absolutely. I wonder if the ransom was was genuine at a point in time and they they did find some small way to get rid of them and monetize, make some small amount of money off of them. And no idea who they like, even even L.A. Le Corsier, I, I gather you did speak to one person who sort of had a bit of a shadow of doubt around them, or he did at least a shadow of doubt around them as being potentially someone who is involved, but we don't know. Right. So there was a character that Le Corsier found through his his kind of recreational investigations and it was one day at an opening in montreal he met a character who was a student at ucam at Université de quebec montreal mm-hmm. uh, at the time of the theft who just seemed to know and they, they got on the, the topic of the 1972 theft and he just seemed to know more than what was publicized about it and la Corsair always calls this fellow smith right and smith just, just seemed to know yeah just to anonymize him Smith just seemed to know more than what was out in the papers about this. And so La Croisier was always convinced that he was potentially somehow involved. They they went, there's a, a really brilliant kind of cat and mouse between them where uh, La Croisier, he's doing a program for Radio Canada. And it's it's a little documentary called The Colombo of Art. Right. That was kind of his, that was, that was his, uh, his nickname. And he shows up at Smith's property. He's, he's blurred out on camera and offers him a million dollars to show him where on his property that those paintings are, are buried. Oh, nice. Smith just, just, he just laughs and invites the whole crew in for coffee. But you know, wow. long after that, a couple years after that, Smith really liked to play this cat and mouse game. And he sent him an email that contained a YouTube link to a Mercedes Benz commercial. And it was a, a commercial that featured a car chase and whoever was in this car chase, it starts with a robbery and a bank vault and they get in the car and they chase through the city. 
And then at the end of the commercial, it's it's revealed what's in the stolen briefcase, and it's a Da Vinci painting. So wow, yeah, talk <laughs> Smith about, talk liked about... being this character. He liked yeah. being this character to La Crucier. No uh, La Crucier thinks he wasn't the mastermind of it, but he knew somebody who was involved and potentially was involved. That was La Crucier's. Uh, that was wow. his, his, his thought. So here we are 50 years later. There's been some rekindled interest in it, though, uh, Chris, not just yours, but other people have been looking into it, too. Uh, do we, is there any expectation this could maybe deliver some answers that have remained unanswered up until now? Ben, I am hopeful. I'm, I'm cautiously hopeful, but I, I don't think so. Uh, I think people with this story told me kind of time and time again, the only way that it's going to it's going to come to an end. And that's that one day somebody's somebody's grandson somebody's great grandson who was involved in these in these thefts who the paintings have trickled down to and they've inherited uh doesn't know their kind of notorious history and tries to monetize them they think i have this rembrandt or i have this brugel the elder and i want to turn it into a few million dollars and they bring it to an auction house which is the only place you're going to sell those things and it gets found out that this is where the paintings have gone. Wow. I think that's the most likely ending to this. And you mentioned it too, because even 50 years later, I suppose they could go back and figure out where sort of the provenance of the painting, where it had gone in those years in between. But you mentioned in the article too, so many people who were involved in that day, obviously with the passage of time, have passed. They're, they're, they're no longer with us. So the stories have gone too. The witnesses have gone. This is the most difficult part of reporting a story like this is, you know, you want to talk to the three security guards who were there, the only people who saw the robbers. And I asked La Courcier about them. And he said, oh, two have, and mind you, this is in 2019. He said, mm-hmm. oh, two have died and the last one has Alzheimer's. So that's just a, a, a dead end. Mm-hmm. And anybody who remembers the story, all of the museum staff, uh, the people who were executives at the time have, have departed. Uh, you know, we're talking about 50 years ago. Yep. So a, a lot of the people who were the players in this story are no longer on the scene. Uh, Chris, what did you learn from it? I mean, the article is great. It really lays out this this incredible art mystery that happened right here in this country 50 years ago. Uh, what did you walk away from that story with? I was struck by the sense that there's just, not only are the characters departing, but the memory of, of the theft is departing. The landmarks involved have changed. And everybody seems to forget, including the institution itself. The records of it are not fantastic. Nobody's even sure if you ask around there which skylight exactly it was. Uh, I was really struck by that piece. And, you know, sometimes we've got to retell stories like this so that we don't forget them. The idea of telling the story is 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 fascinating in itself. And then you walk away and here we are. We, we're actually learning a little bit more about this art heist. But is there also a, a movie being made or something along those lines? There's other people also looking at this, at the history of this 50 years later? That's exactly right. There was a, a filmmaker. His name is Maxim Claude Lecouillet. He made a film. Uh, he was making a film at the time that I was reporting this. And it was it was a fictional version. Uh, and it, it started exactly at that moment I described where one of the paintings, and he he posited as, as one of the, the Bruegels, uh, turns up at an auction house in Belgium. And this reopens the case for his fictional uh, veteran Montreal art detective, who I think we can imagine is kind of based on a character like La Croisière. Uh, working along a young conservationist to kind of like go back through those ropes and find out who stole them and where the other paintings are. Because the way you've described it all the way through, I mean, it really is something right out of a movie, right? The the almost perfect crime, uh, tripping the alarm, leaving this stuff behind, running down the street, the ransoms, then disappearing completely. 
it is something right out of a script. I mean, the only thing that makes it, you know, not a movie is we have this unsatisfying ending that it just seems like it was a perfect crime. Any theories of your own at this point? I guess not. I don't. I've 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 ascribed Ben to that one day sometime in the future one of these paintings will turn up and we'll get inform- information more information we'll be able to to unspool unspool the story a little more at that point in time but I think at this moment we're stuck. And I know, I know that's unsatisfying and frustrating but that's what that's what I feel about it. Amazing that your editor would drop all those articles on it and there there were the seeds of the story because it really is one of those forgotten crimes. Absolutely. That's why I think it's 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 important. I know anniversaries help us to remember things and talk about things, but that's why it's important to keep remembering stories like this. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your work on this. It's been uh, maybe one day, I, I, and listeners and everyone, one day when one of those paintings pops up somewhere, everyone will go, aha, that's what happened. But until then, thanks so much. That's when the story starts again. <laughs> exactly. Chris, thank you. Thanks, Ben. I just returned from the U.S. I uh, was in San Diego uh, with my wife over the Easter weekend. And, you know, it, it's when you're in Canada and there's a mass shooting in the U.S., I mean, we all stop and we all recognize uh, yet another horror that's unfolded in, in the United States. But when you're there, it is a little bit, um, it's just a little bit different, right? So that was Amazing Grace, obviously sung by Jason Claiborne. Hundreds of people gathered this evening to remember the victims killed in a mass shooting at a Louisville bank earlier this week. The vigil was held at the Muhammad Ali Center in downtown Louisville. That's less than two kilometers away from the site of Monday's shooting. Um, You know, it's just another, again, you know, it's another one of those incidents in America that leaves you scratching your head if you're watching from the outside. The bank employee, uh, a gentleman named Connor Sturgeon, who's 25, allegedly or illegally bought the gun, his AR-15 assault rifle from a local dealership a week ago. The police chief was saying that uh, earlier this week to target certain co-workers. There's been lots of, uh, it's not a red flag state, uh, Kentucky, so there are no background checks. You can't stop someone. And there are an awful lot of questions right now, but if that if that particular incident could have been prevented. Uh, it is the latest shooting again. Gun violence is a daily occurrence. Mass shootings are something we talk about far too often, that we see far too often. And it came on the heels of an article that really caught my attention recently. Uh, The new research showed that the number of U.S. kids killed by gunfire had hit a record high. Um, And that was after another mass shooting at a school last month, right? Roughly 2,590 gun deaths of children and teenagers under the age of 18 were recorded in 2021. 2,590. That's a 50% jump since 2019 before the COVID-19 pandemic. That all according to the IPU Research Center analysis that was published last week. They were all fatalities when firearms was listed as the underlying cause of death. Most gun deaths uh, among children are total about 60%. In 2021 were homicides, one-third were suicides, the remainder were accidents, so 60% homicides. And after that school shooting uh, a while back last month, it really got me thinking about the doctors on the front lines of this, because I was looking at a social media thread where doctors from around other countries, similar countries, Canada, Australia, and so on, and in Europe, were talking about how surgeons were talking about, pediatric surgeons, were talking about how they had never seen a gunshot wound in a child. That they had worked in this industry, they'd done thousands of surgeries, 
And they had never seen a gunshot wound in a child, people living in other parts of the world. And I thought, what must it be like for an American pediatric surgeon now when quite clearly part of your training, part of what you do, and part of what you have to cope with is these devastating injuries in these very young patients? Now, it's a crisis that Dr. Stephanie Chow is witnessing firsthand uh, as the trauma medical director at the Lucille Packard Children's Hospital uh, at Stanford and an assistant professor of, in the surgery division of the pediatric surgery of pediatric surgery at Stanford Medicine as well. Um, in her own research, which she does as well on this crisis, she's drawn on her own experience as a pediatric surgeon during which she operated on patients brought in with what she says were horrific gunshot injuries. So we head to the front lines tonight of what is a crisis in America, the leading cause of death, gun violence, and the pediatric surgeons on the very front lines of this crisis operating, saving lives and losing lives, losing patients as well. And uh, Dr. Stephanie Chow uh, joins me now. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me on your program. This is one of those issues, whenever there is a, a, a very high-profile incident in the U.S., I see lots of surgeons, pediatric surgeons like yourself around the world, sort of talking about how they haven't seen uh, gunshot wounds in kids. I guess as a pediatric surgeon in the U.S., this is something you're acutely aware of, something you have to deal with and train for. Unfortunately, yes. And unfortunately, it is becoming increasingly common. Uh, in the U.S. now, Firearms is the leading cause of death among children, more than car accidents, more than childhood cancer. So it is very much a reality that we are all preparing to deal with more on a regular basis. How do you do it? Uh, as a, as a, how do you prepare for it? And, and how do you go about doing it? It strikes me as being something that it would be hard to teach and hard to learn. Yeah, you know, there's so many different aspects about preparing for this. There's the surgical training. We've all done years, sometimes more than a decade of surgical training. And the mechanics of it, of, of operating on a patient who has an injury, we know how to do that. But I think no amount of training can really ever prepare you for a patient, particularly a child who is coming in to your ER with these types of wounds. They're very dramatic. And they're coming in with often their families that are just beside themselves. And I also look at it from the perspective of a parent. I have two young children and, you know, you send them to school, you send them out into the world, not thinking that these are dangers that are now lurking um, in their everyday environment. And how do you prepare your children for that? without scaring them and keeping them from going out into the world and exploring um, the world as it is. Uh, and just dealing with and, and, and consoling the parents, talking to the parents must be incredibly difficult too. And part of the, part of the, the job that I'm sure has to be learned as well. Yeah. You know, I think that um, it's unfortunately something that you, we are learning on the job and a lot of it just comes from a place of empathy and trying your best to imagine yourself in their position I have to say the other day, I took care of a young girl who had a bullet lodged in her leg. After her visit with me, her mother had to take her son, this young girl's brother, to see another specialist because he had also been shot and was not able to walk properly. And I asked them, you know, they're not native English speakers, but I asked them what happened and are you afraid? And Unfortunately, the young girl, matter-of-factly said, we live in a bad area, and this these things happen. Wow. 
do you talk to your peers in other countries about this stuff? Because I know part of what what was struck me so much recently after another high profile incident was other pediatric surgeons in other countries, such as Canada, who thankfully don't see this as often. They must ask you questions as well. Yeah, I think this is just it's it's an American phenomenon that we're not very proud of. Yeah. And I think it does baffle people from other countries. And part of it is that the U.S. owns so many more guns than any other country. I think it's something like the the U.S. owns 50%, nearly 50% of the circulating civilian guns of the whole world. And so no other country has this magnitude of firearm violence that we do. And the damage that it does to children must be, you know, to see a child with a gunshot wound, the damage that it does must be indescribable. Yeah, you know, I think that the ones who show up in our ERs are actually the lucky ones because they have a chance for survival. Firearms compared to any other weapons are so incredibly deadly and so many patients never make it to the ER. We often hear about the very high profile incidents, the school shootings and so on. But I, but listening to you, I, I get the impression that that's not what you see mostly. Mostly you see, you know, things that we'd be considered to be... Um, more mundane, to, to, if that, that's the wrong word, but more mundane, sadly. Yeah, yeah. We, we unfortunately did have a mass shooting nearby, which we did have to respond to. The things that are most common, depending on where hospitals are located, may be assault, particularly in more urban areas. But the other very common thing that people don't really realize is suicide is the most common mechanism of death by firearm. And it is incredibly deadly. And periodically, again, some of those patients make it to our hospital, but a lot of times they don't. Kids. Kids, adults, teens. How do you steel yourself as a professional for it? I mean, I, I think it's just for, for, for many, it's not that it's unimaginable, because it's not, it's not that it doesn't happen elsewhere. But it seems to be one of those phenomenons that as a doctor, you find yourselves on the front lines of this, um, trying to repair damage that's that's difficult to difficult to comprehend in a lot of places. Yeah, I think that part of our training is that we're able to compartmentalize our thoughts and really focus. So it's almost like it's automatic. A, a patient comes in with a certain injury and, and we go to work. And those other emotions that we feel, we kind of for better or worse, are able to compartmentalize until that job is done for the moment. But then, you know, you go home and you reflect on this. And that's why a lot of us feel so passionately about it, because so few people have actually seen a firearm injury up close. And so, so many doctors are increasingly becoming advocates for gun education and gun safety, because we see the firsthand devastation that it causes. As a public health issue, as much as anything else, right? I mean, I know there's, I know the politics, but this for you is very much a public health issue. It is, of course, it's very much a pu- public health issue. If you're looking at what's killing kids, it's guns. And how can you ignore that, right? When infectious disease was killing kids, we all focused on immunizations. Now it's guns that are killing kids, killing um, adults. And I, I don't see how as of doctors where we're trying to promote health and prevent disease can ignore that as the leading cause. Dr. Stephanie Chow is with us, a pediatric surgeon, trauma director at the Lucille Packard Children's Hospital in California, assistant professor of pediatric surgery at Stanford University. Dr. Chow, you've looked into this and there are some things 
that work. It, it, it sometimes boggles the mind how slowly the, 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 the legislation moves with some of the advice that you've given. But what could work here? I think like any major public health problem, I don't think there's a single um, solution that will be a cure-all. We wish that there was, and I wish I could say that uh, passing a single type of law would ultimately change all of this tragedy. It won't. I think there, it's multifactorial. We all have to work together within society, within healthcare. What we have found over and over again in some of the studies that uh, my lab has done, as well as many groups across the country, is that laws do actually work. It is highly politicized, and people can argue which laws But we have found again and again that states that have more laws have fewer deaths, fewer deaths from um, homicide, fewer deaths from suicide. Uh, In particular, regarding children, there are a specific subset of laws called child access prevention laws. And these are laws specifically aimed at trying to prevent children from getting their hands on guns. And we have found that states that have these had four times fewer rates of suicide among children compared to states that don't have any. And I think that this is a very easy starting point, right? This is, these laws are not meant to keep people who can safely handle a gun away from it. It really is to keep children away from guns and to store them safely if you choose to have them in your home. I think the other things that are very important is that we have to talk to people about it. Aside from pointing fingers and making a political issue, I think more importantly, people just have to be able to talk about it so that they recognize how to store guns safely, how to keep guns away from people who may be in a mental health crisis. If people are more comfortable asking, doctors religiously asking, counselors, friends, loved ones saying, is there a gun in the home? And particularly recognizing that when someone may be on the verge of a mental health crisis, that asking those questions may actually save their life. You've, you've described it as being in, in that politicized environment as being pro-child, not, not, not anti-gun. And, and, and I, I recognize how difficult it is to walk that line in America sometimes, but that sounds like the right approach, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I think that we all have so many different beliefs, um, cultural beliefs, uh, recreational uses, and I can't prescribe one action for everyone. But what I can say is that all of us want to protect our kids. All of us want to see our kids grow up. And anything that we can do to protect our children, I really can't imagine anyone trying to prevent that from happening. It must feel like you're you're yelling into the wind sometimes, though. I mean, we've seen these numbers increase recently, not decrease. I think that uh, if we don't yell into the wind, <laughs> there's not going to be any noise. It's just going to keep going up. More of us need to talk together and speak together and band together and finding where we all have a common voice and starting there. Yeah, and when one looks at your experience, too, I mean, these are issues that other doctors deal with. I mean, I was reading something the other day about an emergency surgeon here in Canada, and they were debating whether or not to ask patients about guns in the house. And it's controversial, right? It's, it's, it's not something that ne- you're necessarily taught in med school. A lot of topics that used to be controversial now are so commonplace. For example, asking about alcohol use, asking whether people smoke. You know, in the 1950s, it was the cool thing and probably the doctor was out smoking with the patient. But as we gather more knowledge, more data, and we know what is harming um, ourselves and our loved ones, we have to find different ways to approach these health topics and speak about it from the perspective 
of health prevention. And so, you know, the dialogue is going to change. And I think doctors are going to have to learn to speak about gun safety, just as we learned how to talk about smoking cessation. And just for you personally, I mean, you must have to brace yourself each and every day for the for this reality that you now face regularly. Yeah, I mean, we brace for this both in the ER, we brace for this as parents sending our kids to school. We, our kids in schools now have active shooter drills, which are frightening for kids and people don't know if that's the right answer. On the flip side, in our emergency room, we have mass casualty drills where we're preparing to receive patients. Yeah, Dr. Chow, thank you so much for shedding some light on this. Um, Much appreciated. You're welcome, it was my pleasure. 